Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is June 19th, 2018. And this is episode 19, Talking Trash, Lessons in Debris Management from the 2013 Southern Alberta Floods. In this episode, we mark the five-year anniversary of the beginning of one of the most damaging floods in Canadian history. We're going to examine a very specific learning point generated from that disaster, debris management. What is it? Why is it important? And what could we be doing better? To this end, we will be speaking with Joe Angevine, who managed the primary landfill site for the High River response during the flood. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. It's hard to believe that it's been five years since southern Alberta was faced with this combination of torrential rains and high soil moisture levels and the the rapidly rising rivers, which resulted in this costliest disaster in Canadian history at the time. And with 32 states of local emergency declared, uh, 28 EOCs activated, and over 100,000 people displaced between Canmore and Calgary and High River, uh, it's safe to say that there were a lot of potential learnings to be gleaned from this response. But today, we'd like to talk about one in particular, and that one is to do with a very often poorly understood topic of disaster debris management. Yeah, it's one of those topics that maybe isn't quite as sexy as other emergency management topics, but uh, nonetheless very important. And we know uh, the recovery phase, um, it's a crucial part of uh, having a a good recovery management plan. And there's a lot of downstream complications that can happen from improper debris management. Yeah, and talk about all hazard plans. I can't think of a, a hazard that doesn't result in some level of debris or damage and you know if there wasn't debris or damage it wouldn't be a disaster so i think this is a a very timely topic with the new brunswick floods just finishing up i think it's a very important topic and often a missed topic so before we get going it's time for acronym that's right let's uh get out that decoder ring so a couple of terms that you need to be familiar with first off the waste stream So this refers to different types of debris, such as vegetation or white goods, which are things like fridges and stoves, things that are found in your house, uh, sediment and different recyclables, for example. Yeah, and within the waste streams, I mean, the UN defines eight uh, uh, specific kinds. Uh, CND, known as construction and demolition-related waste, is the most common after a disaster, and that's the type of waste stream you can expect the most of. And one last point of clarification, waste versus debris. Uh, Debris contains vegetative and building materials often found in the wake of disaster, and waste refers to the entire waste matrix and all of the streams of waste. And this becomes important, especially in jurisdictions where uh, the funding for disaster debris removal may be uh, provided from, uh, you know, federal agencies, whereas normal day-to-day waste isn't. So uh, separating those streams becomes very important in, in some jurisdictions. Now, one thing I do want to recognize before we dive into this interview is the incredible efforts of all the responders, the volunteers, and the emergency managers during this very difficult time. It it really was a landmark event in Alberta's disaster development, if you will. And it's sometimes also easy to armchair quarterback these responses from a a safe distance separated by time. Uh, But continual learning and development is, is critical to our growth as a profession. So it's with that lens that I present to you an interview with Joe Angevine, recorded June 18th, 2018. So hello, my name is Joe Angevine. I am currently the uh, landfill manager at the Foothills Regional Waste Management uh, Facility. 
Um, so why did I become interested in disaster debris management? Uh, basically, I manage the, the landfill site uh, operations here after the response to the 2013 flooding in High River, which basically the whole town was evacuated and shut down. Uh, almost every home in the town was impacted in some way by flooding. So uh, the amount of debris was fairly overwhelming and it just really opened my eyes to the industry and uh, disaster response and how serious these things are. Um, I started doing a master's program through Royal Roads University and was trying to think of an interesting subject to research. Uh, and at that time, I was actually asked to speak on a, um, a panel discussion for the Recycling Council of Alberta about disaster response and how to deal with all the debris and cope and uh, manage a site and all those types of things. And I was sitting there with, on this panel with some folks that had gone through the Slave Lake fire in 2011. So we basically were up there and they're asking us questions and we were all kept saying the same things and the same themes kept coming up of things that um, we didn't see coming or we didn't expect or the things that surprised us, things that overwhelmed us. And it just kind of made me think, well, why has no one kind of summarized these lessons learned? Um, you know, had I talked to those people before the flood, uh, it would have been immensely valuable and I could have saved myself a lot of grief on our experience because it looked like they kind of went, we all were kind of going through the same um, experience, almost almost experiencing it like kind of like a Groundhog Day thing where um, we all went through the same learning curve and, and made the same mistakes and it just kind of struck me that no one has taken the time to actually kind of combine these lessons learned into something that uh, could be transmitted to other sites that are impacted by disasters. Hmm. So before we get into uh, your thesis, can you, can you uh, give us an overview of really what disaster debris management is all about and why it's so important uh, to the overall response effort? Um, so yeah, basically it's, it's about you know, restoring access to a community after a disaster. So um, you're dealing with issues of you know, vegetative material, things like that, that are blocking roads uh, and first responders can't get into the community or key infrastructure is blocked or damaged, like lift stations, things of that nature. It's uh, kind of, there's kind of the initial debris uh, surge or, or handling event and then there's the ongoing part of the disaster recovery. Uh, which is once people get back into their homes, in our case in the flood, there's an immense amount of debris that's going to come out of each each home. And I mean, driving around High River, it looked like a war zone. These, every home had just piles that were, you know, 10, 15 feet high in some, some of these homes of debris just piled up kind of all over the streets. And what do you do? How do you, how do you get these people back in their home and, and have them living in a normal way when the, you're, you've got these massive um, amounts of debris? And then, and then it becomes a question of how do you manage that debris in a way that doesn't just shut down the whole community or shut down uh, a landfill site. And in our case, we basically had our, our site shut down on two or three separate occasions because we were just totally overwhelmed with the traffic. Um, and you know the way it was done at High River, it, I, I've now learned through this uh, the, my study that you know, there are things that we could have done that could have really helped us manage that uh, debris and haul it in a more efficient way. And, and we wouldn't have had those problems. And then there's other issues like safety. I mean, you've got asbestos. How many of these homes are, are people pulling asbestos materials out of their basements and not even knowing that there that this was a risk? And that I had numerous people in my study basically say, yeah, a lot of residents and and uh, and volunteers were likely exposed to asbestos during the the cleanup because when you don't have these anything any plans in place kind of up front. It just becomes reactionary and, and unorganized, and uh, a lot of people. And that's one small example of where 
it can become a serious issue. What sort of uh, tonnage did you see and how does that compare to your normal? So yeah, I pulled up some, uh, some data on the tonnage just to put things in perspective. So on our site, uh, from July 1st to July 31st, so just basically a month of operation following the flood. In 2012, in that same period, we basically had 6,800 metric tons come to our site. In 2013, after the flood, we had 50,000 metric tons. So almost 10, you know, tenfold wow. um, on the, the, the amount of tonnage. Now, having gone through it personally, I'll say the tonnage is one thing. What was even more overwhelming was the traffic. So the way it was done in High River, everyone just came to the landfill. They, they didn't set up a transfer station or anything like that to let the small haulers come. So, you know, we went from having a standard day out here. We have, let's say, 300 loads to our site. Well, we were getting, you know, 1,000 to 1,300 loads a day. So it wasn't so much the tonnage that overwhelmed us, it was the, the lineups, that the, the sheer volume of people coming to our site. And we had days where basically we had 100 trucks lined up down the highway, wow. blocking off the highway, creating huge safety risks. You know, we had wow. to have the RCMP out to stop traffic and let people go by. And so you just, yeah, you try and put that in perspective. And how, if you have no plan in place, how do you, where do you focus your planning and how do you... How much staff do you need? And we really had nothing to go off of. We were just basically winging it the whole time. Um, you know, and I think overall we, we were able to get through it and uh, you know, the town did recover. But there, like I say, there were huge headaches. Our staff were stressed out incredibly. Uh, I was on site for you know, 12 hours a day for months straight. It, it, totally overwhelming, essentially. I can definitely see how that would be a good topic for a thesis. <laughs> um, and, and seriously, it seems like it would require a lot more research and pre-planning. Can you give us a brief overview of what your, your thesis project was, uh, as well as some of the research questions and methodologies that you used? The title of the thesis was Come Hell or High Water, a Comparative Analysis of the 2013 Flood Response in the Town of High River. Um, and basically what I tried to do was look at three periods of time. So um, I looked at basically what were the government of Alberta and the town of High River prepared before the flood hit um, to properly haul and dispose of the debris generated um, from the flooding. The second question was basically during the actual response, did the debris management strategies that they utilized during the 2013 flood response follow industry best practices? And the third was, you know, kind of a summary of what lessons learned can be implemented um, after the flooding to improve the response capabilities of the government of Alberta and other municipalities for future responses. And basically, I went through and built a, a questionnaire, and all these, every question was related to, and actually had a reference from kind of expert literature. Is there a lot of literature out there on uh, disaster <laughs> debris removal? That's a good question. Uh, I actually had a hard time finding much. There was. And I, what I found is that places that have more, um, I guess, more of a history of disaster response, places like California, Florida, where they deal with a lot of hurricanes, um, earthquakes, things of that nature, a lot of municipalities have these, and they're, they're quite well developed. Um, but yes, there were, there were enough, enough sources that I was able to find. I think I had about 40 questions, and each question was from, you know, uh, there were probably 15 different sources that that all came from that were, were quite detailed. And what, what are, just to, for our, our viewers, what are some of the principles of best practice to do with debris management? I had kind of eight general categories that I, I kind of combined together from all the different sources. Uh, things like having the right qualified people develop and use the plan. So kind of an integration of disaster response uh, management professionals, you know, waste management and recycling professionals, as well as uh, 
you know, the fire and the, the police and those types of guys, getting them together to build these plans together so they, they understand how it'll work when it actually, something does happen. Um, clear goals, assigning responsibilities of what, which organization is responsible for which uh, goals. Uh, safety training and procedures, so having that ready ahead before the disaster mm -hmm. strikes. They, again, uh, things like that asbestos that in the heat of the moment people just aren't going to think about, but if it's ready ahead of time and you have those, you can basically give it to the responding staff or uh, it can be part of a handout for a resident. Um, you know, things like can, can your landfill, will it have the capacity to handle a disaster event? Do you have the airspace? You know, we were getting two to three years of, of volume in, in about three or four months. Do you have that type of airspace in your site? If you don't, what are you going to do? You have to you know, plan those things out. What additional sites could you utilize? Um, you know, contracting things. So pre-negotiated pre contracts on rates, that became a big problem in High River, that nothing was pre-negotiated. And they basically, you know, a lot of haulers kind of ripped off the province and, and the federal mm. government because it was just kind of, they did sole source contracting and a lot of stuff was just, yeah, yeah, go, go do it and we'll, we'll, we'll worry about the rates afterwards. Right. And, yeah. yeah, and what I learned also was a lot of companies actually have manuals on how to maximize profit during a disaster response. So, I mean, these companies come in and they're, they're, they're ready to go. They're, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're looking to take advantage of the situation. So if you don't have any, any kind of pre-negotiated stuff in place, you're going to get taken advantage of. Um, volume estimation procedures, that's, there's a lot of that out there on how to plan and, and estimate volumes. Uh, Pre-made communication with the public is another big one that they recommend. And kind of collaboration between all different levels of government. So, um, you know, mutual aid agreements, things of that nature, having those things in place before a disaster hits. So that's kind so, of a quick So summary. really a lot of the same sort of best practices as, as always. Communication, collaboration, safety, focus, uh, and then that pre-planning feature, but with a, a lens of disaster debris management. Yeah, and they often, those, you know, from what, what I saw in the study was basically this is nothing new. We don't have to create a new plan. What they recommend is basically it's like an appendix to a, a municipality's disaster response plan. That you just basically have this appendix that in the time of a disaster, you know, you open it right up and there you go. You've got your, you've got your pre-approved contractors list. You've got all these different things. You've got communication material that's ready to hand out and copy. Boom, it's right there. So what did you find? Did uh, High River have that appendix? <laughs> uh, in general, no. Um, the findings in general, um, most of the expert recommended components were not in place in, in High River's experience. And what struck me was that was despite the fact that everyone considered it a high-risk community for flooding. So that was a specific question I asked each person was because um, you know, FEMA and these organizations recommend you focus disaster planning on high-risk communities. Everyone knew that this was just a matter of time and it was a high-risk, and yet they kind of said, well... At the, they would say that, and then uh, they would also say, yeah, but we, we never saw this, this potential here. Like, we never thought this could happen here. And then, yeah, another kind of key finding was um, that the incident command system that the response was based around uh, kind of seemed to have a disconnect uh, with waste management and debris management. So I think that the, that, in large part, led to a lot of the problems that we saw here. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, um, so basically, some examples of it that I found were that the ICS and the existing plan that High River did have, um, and the ICS system that it was based off of, 
you know, there's no positions, even they had lists and lists of, I think, you know, 30-something positions that were supposed to be manned in the EOC. None of them were related to debris in any way or uh, kind of waste management in any way. And there was also, um, and that was that went for the province as well, you know, they really didn't have anything on that. Um, and there were like 70-something forms in there uh, that, that would be used in the EOC. Again, not one of them related to debris or, or, um, or waste management in any way. So it just kind of seemed that there was a, a general disconnect and that the debris was kind of an afterthought. And actually some of the respondents even, even said as much. Um, you know, one respondent basically said that um, this is an industry-wide problem and that basically the preparedness, they plan for saving life, property, and the environment, and then debris is essentially an afterthought. A couple of participants um, kind of shared that. Which is really funny because if, if those priorities are, uh, you know, life, pro property, and environment, then property and environment seem to fit pretty heavily into disaster debris management. Yeah, and I would say that that kind of, in some ways, shocked me when I, when I saw, um, I guess, how little planning had been done. And I should clarify that, I mean, this isn't just High River. Canada-wide, this sort of gap in any after-action report that I've read or in a lot of the plans just don't really identify disaster debris management uh, maybe as clearly as it should. What other sort of gaps were apparent in the, in the response and how did that impact how the response went? Gaps. It's interesting you mentioned Canada-wide too because one, actually one of the uh, kind of articles that I read during the study was from 1996 and they basically said the same thing that this is kind of a, a Canada-wide problem that we don't seem to plan for debris uh, in Canada uh, and apparently you know doing this study this you know, decade later it was basically kind of a similar finding. So some other gaps. Um, one, the way one uh, respondent basically put it was that the whole response was very kind of 1920s he called it. It was just get it out, get it as, out of here as fast as possible and we don't care where it goes. To the extent that you know things like household hazardous waste and those types of things, basically every respondent said that no, that just all went in the garbage with everything else. There was really no effort to to segregate, uh, you know, chemicals and paints and things like that. Oh. It basically, um, and that's kind of usually a key recommendation is that you have kind of a curb sort for these events where basically you know you can put kind of metal off to one side, you put all the rest of the debris kind of in the middle, and then maybe off to the one side you'd have the hazardous materials and they're picked up separately, dealt with separately. Uh, that really, there was almost no effort um, based on the respondents. That did not seem to be a priority at all. And is that a, a hazard down the road, or does that complicate things? Well, yeah, we could see a, an impact here on our, uh, you know, in the, in the landfill here, right? I mean, all those chemicals and stuff going into the landfill, eventually that shows up in what's called your leachate. So it's basically what's collected, um, and we have a liner system, all those types of things in the landfill to uh, ensure that it doesn't impact groundwater, but Nonetheless, uh, you know, it just creates more risk that you've got highly contaminated leachate down the road in your landfill. You talked a lot about uh, the use of volunteers in your, in your thesis. I, I know that uh, spontaneous volunteers are to be expected, and one of the major roles for volunteers during the recovery phase of the flood was basically demolition and collection of garbage and that sort of thing. How was that from a disaster debris management point of view? Yeah, so that, um, I actually interviewed one of the head guys from the, what's called the NGO Council, the Non-Government Organization Council in Alberta here. You know, that's part of what they recommend um, as part of a disaster response plan and a debris management plan is also to have that a plan in place for the volunteers and to have all the, 
the PPE and the, the, uh, the training ready for them. A lot of that didn't really happen in High River because it was so rushed, because it was so, and there was very little pre-planning. Uh, he basically said, you know, we were brought in and mentioned in the government plans without them even talking to us. So he actually found out that they were a, a part of the EOC in High River by reading it online, despite the fact that they were basically were mentioning their organization by name. Um, so he was kind of surprised, he said he was surprised when he saw that. And it was basically weeks before they were ever integrated into the EOC in High River. So for weeks, there were all these kind of random uh, volunteer organizations that were operating. And according to him, he said, he said that basically they were all kind of independent and everyone had their own kind of safety uh, or lack thereof. Um, you know, there were some stories, some examples he gave of, you know, volunteers going in and pulling out uh, load-bearing walls and, and uh, <laughs> teleposts and things of that nature. So essentially condemning the home that they were trying to help save, uh, as well as a lot of, um, a lot of, yeah, basically almost no training as far as asbestos and things of that nature um, that he basically confirmed. So all in all, it was an amazing turnout of volunteers for High River. Um, and they did an exceptional amount of work. And one of my recommendations to the, to the AMA, Alberta Emergency Management Agency, is to, you know, to try and better integrate um, themselves with those organizations in future disasters. Um, and to their credit, they said that it was done better in Fort McMurray, that they were better integrated. So it looks like they realized that that was an issue and have, have taken some strides uh, to improve that. But yeah, they basically, for weeks, there was very little integration of the volunteer organizations with the EOC, and, and it was kind of a free-for-all. So it sounds like plenty of room for uh, continuous improvement and planning. Uh, what were some of the other findings that you, you had from your study? So one of the, one of the key recommendations that I, that I made was basically an update to the incident command system, uh, the training and kind of that entire system. So. Um, to me, it's a pretty straightforward solution in, in speaking with the people involved here that, that you basically just need to include and create a an, one addi additional position that is kind of a debris management specialist or a waste management specialist that would be brought in during a time of, of any kind of disaster. I, I imagine no matter what the disaster is, you're going to have some kind of debris and issues. And uh, that was, to me, was kind of a, a low-hanging fruit that could easily... Uh, start to bridge the gap between the two industries, the the disaster planning industry and the uh, you know the waste and recycling or waste management industry. That just by getting those people in the same room and building these types of plans together, that seems like a very simple way to start um, bridging that gap or or silo effect kind of between the two industries. So that was another kind of um, key one. Yeah, just ensuring that lessons learned from previous disasters are, are, are utilized and actually summarized in some way that is meaningful. So I had basically multiple people from my study that all said, why is no one contacting me up until now? Like, why are you doing this four years after the fact? But, you know, in, the, in this case, why is the Emerg Alberta Emergency Management Agency not reached out to a company like Tervita? So I had two people from Tervita, that was the main company involved in the cleanup of High River and the disaster debris management. And they both basically said, we would, we would provide them feedback and lessons learned for free because we do work in Alberta. A lot of the people here that were involved were residents of Alberta. They want to see this improve too. And uh, they basically said, you know, they haven't even been approached until kind of I came along. So that to me, 
And I saw that in uh, basically the after action report or the studies that followed up the disaster too. MNP did a follow up study for the Alberta government. And I mean, this thing was like 200 pages long and had all these, all these recommendations. And there's almost nothing in it about debris through the whole study. It's just, it kind of just seems like, again, that we're not connecting this and it's almost an afterthought. So lots to learn on the municipal and the response side. Were there any key learnings for the actual waste disposal site? Um, yeah, we had a lot. So I would say the biggest issue that we realized we had and has improved was how we run our scale house. So uh, you know, we have a scale house software where every load is, someone comes up and you ask them where they're from, what do they have, and you enter some information, you know, a license plate or something to track them by. Um, the system we were using, they were you know, asking for last names and they often couldn't see the license plate because of trailers, uh, things like that. So we kind of went to like a numbered card system that um, we would just hand them a card. We arranged to have all the loads uh, were essentially agreed to be paid for by the municipality and then the government would kind of reimburse them. And that removed the need for us to do debit transactions and credit card transactions on the, the scale. So that basically reduced our processing time in the scale house from like you know 45 seconds a load to like 10 or 15, and that just kept the site. You know those first couple of weeks, we of learning those lessons. We like I said, we almost shut the site down because it was so slow and got so backed up. And over time of issues of traffic control and um, things of that nature, we were able to to kind of keep the site moving. But one of the key recommendations I'd make too is that impacted communities need to use what they call a transfer station. So in the case of High River, um, the respondents basically came back and said that, you know, if we could have kept all the small haulers, all the guy, the, the guy with their, you know, their grain truck or using their buddy's trailer, if we could have kept all those guys in the town or let's say a site on the edge of town, let all the small haul guys go there and then you basically reload the material into like walking floor trailers, like 50 foot walking floor trailers, and those go to the landfill. You know that would have been far more manageable the, the, uh, on the site here for traffic and for uh, safety and all those things. Because you know when you've got small haul people pull them up next to fifty foot end dumps and stuff like that, it's just not a it's a recipe for disaster. And we're lucky no one was hurt or um, or injured on site here. So you know there are some recommendations like that too on how to. Uh, lessons learned on how to more efficiently handle and uh, and haul and transfer the material uh, in the case of a disaster. And it's funny how a lot of the lessons learned in disaster just translate into good practices during peacetime right. sort of thing. Like I'm sure your more efficient uh, system here is is of benefit to you even now. Oh no question. It, I mean, yeah, we we kind of had to learn. We're thrown in the deep end basically, and uh, yeah, to this day we all, it's created huge efficiencies that we. Uh, that we use every day. So some really great recommendations from this study, but it doesn't matter unless it gets communicated out to the emergency managers and the municipal organizations. If you had to choose just a few things that you wanted emergency managers to understand about disaster debris management, what would they be? I would say that just to make this a priority in their, in their planning. So what struck me about this too is that this isn't a, a new problem. This has been dealt with in other regions. So um, it's more an issue of just are we going to put that effort and time into building these types of plans because you know, like I said I went into areas that uh, and pulled up reports and there were links from some of the different FEMA documents and uh, EPA documents that these plans are, are very well done and very detailed and you can even find templates online so it's just 
you know, putting that time in to actually build these things. Personally, I, I kind of think it's going to have to come from some kind of legislative angle for it to really get much traction. So one of the key recommendations I'd make to the AEMA or to municipal affairs in Alberta here is to basically make this a requirement that every municipality, you know, make one of these appendices or an appendix for their existing plan. It doesn't have to be a whole new plan. Just, uh, you know, work with your local, uh, you know, you could have 15 to 20 things that need to be in this appendix, uh, you know, a site for a transfer station, you know, some procedures for asbestos handling that could easily be handed out, some communication material, and just require that. And that would be a really simple way to kind of, I guess, almost kind of force people to get in the same room and start building these plans and talking. Um, the other angle that I kind of recommend that they could come at it from is uh, being the landfill site, uh, serving High River, our, our site should have had these plans ready. We should have, you know, we were unprepared. Uh, in hindsight. So uh, Alberta Environment could basically require as part of an approval process that each landfill have a regional disaster response plan uh, for debris and that would be a very simple thing to put into a um, to put into an approval and uh, require a site to, to reach out to the communities and say hey if we have a flood or have a fire what are we going to do guys? You know is that likely to happen? I don't know but um, you know disaster planners could at the very least reach out to their local landfill managers or waste waste management professionals and say, hey, if we have a flood or we have whatever disasters are most likely to impact that area, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage this? Where should we send the stuff? How do we deal with contracting? You know, start to deal with those questions now. Um, as the director of the AMA said, before they have you over a barrel, you know, in the in case of a disaster and, and you're just basically scrambling. And I like that point about the, the pre-existing partnerships and memorandums of understanding. It's really, that's a very cost-effective thing to do, yeah. is, is pre-plan. Well, it struck me to the cost of this cleanup that I saw. And, um, and then going through these, in these interviews, I think a lot of that could have been avoided if, if things were pre-planned or pre-negotiated or things of that nature. You know, listening to this... I, I can't help but think of waste management as a piece of critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking it up on the National Strategy for Critical Infrastructure, and it's not listed as part of uh, critical infrastructure. So really, <laughs> you know, it, you've pointed out that it's being forgotten in all these plans. It's being forgotten in Canada. It's sort of the dirty secret that no one wants to talk about. Isn't well, it? it's funny because my experience in the industry is that that's because um, the industry has done a good job of making itself something that people don't think about. It's all about convenience. You know, you put it in a bin and it just disappears and goes away and you never have to think about it again. So we've almost, out of trying to make things, uh, you know, for customer service and those types of things, the industry has done a great job of, of making itself almost kind of a, a, an afterthought. And that hurts us in this case, that like people should be thinking about this stuff and should realize that this doesn't just go away. It, you know, it impacts, uh, it impacts the environment, it impacts rivers, it impacts all these different things. Joe, thank you so much for this epic interview. It's certainly <laughs> been very educational for me, just a dump load of information, if you will. Uh, thanks so much, and I really hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Right on. Well, that sounds like a great uh, conversation you had, Grayson. What uh, stood out to you as some of the, the highlights? Well, as I started to, t to talk to him, I, I just I couldn't help but appreciate some of the complexities of, of waste management. And not that I didn't believe his literature view, but I just had a hard time believing that this critical element had been 
left out of municipal emergency plans. So I did a very unscientific uh, spot check of six municipalities that have flooding as one of their major hazards. And here are my epic results. So out of the six that I uh, reviewed, and I should mention these are the publicly available plans, one plan had no mention of debris whatsoever. Four plans mentioned debris uh, in one or two places, specifically how important it would be to have an agency rep from uh, a landfill or, or something similar in the EOC. And the last plan, which I will mention by name, is Vancouver's plan, and it was outstanding. Over 100 pages of very specific debris management strategies, which covered everything from that initial uh, classification to uh, pre-established debris estimations in, in case of a flood uh, to um, pre-identified contractors that they would uh, they would use in case of a, a disaster. So I think if we're looking to any particular uh, municipality, Vancouver would be sort of a shining example as far as the, the ones that I've looked at. That's right. And uh, I mean, we were already fond of our emergency management friends in Vancouver, but uh, I think this uh, uh, plan really stood out as a, a great example of a usable and well-referenced document um, that I think somebody, or I should say, I'm sure a large team has put a lot of effort into. So uh, way to go. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, next up, we're going to talk a little bit about the literature behind disaster debris removal for our journal club section. So to start off with a little bit of a throwback article, we went uh, through some of the literature and found a nice little review article. It's a little bit outdated now. Um from 2011, but I think still provides a good summary of, of the majority of the literature. Um, it's entitled Disaster, Wait, Disaster Waste Management, a review article. It's by Charlotte Brown, uh, Mark Milkey, and Erica Seville. It's from the journal Waste Management. And essentially, it goes through uh, systematically all of the uh, disaster literature talking about debris removal and highlights some themes in a thematic analysis and tries to identify holes in the the literature. The main themes that they brought up were planning, uh, waste composition and quantity, waste treatment options, environmental considerations, economic considerations, social, organizational, legal frameworks, and funding. And then it provides a nice little one-pager on each one of those Se uh, sections. So some of the things I thought were interesting that kind of stood out, and as you know, with a lot of disaster literature, we're stuck with case reports, one-off case series, um, things like that, or just referencing government uh, disaster guidelines that uh, uh, you know aren't maybe anything more than just expert consensus. But going through these different topics, one of the things that stood out right out of the, the gate was the potential positive effects of debris management. So we always think about the negative side, what happens if you don't have timely debris management. You know, in the acute phase, it could be, uh, you know, if you can't remove snow and, and trees, you know, first responders can't get where they need to go and lives are lost. But uh, in the positive sense, um, there's lots of examples of effective debris management plans that actually helped bolster recovery efforts, actually contributed economically to the recoveries of communities and uh, as well as the social recovery. So, I mean, waste actually has a value. So if you can find a market for your, uh, you know, scrap metal and other debris, um, you know, something potentially that you can uh, reinvest into your recovery efforts. I thought that was an interesting mm -hmm. point. One man's garbage, <laughs> another man's treasure. That's right. So going through all the different um, uh, 
uh, papers. They looked at a lot of after-action reports as well. Um, some of the other interesting things in the waste composition section talked about being able to actually model and predict the type of waste that each different disaster generates. And really, there is some predictable epidemiology here. So you, as an emergency manager, should know what type of waste and, and debris patterns to expect with each type of natural hazard that your community or jurisdiction could be exposed to. So that's been well documented and it's, the good news is it seems to be fairly repeatable. So you could even get as granular as saying how many houses um, of a certain construction type are affected by uh, you know, a certain natural hazard, whether it be an earthquake or a flood, and you can actually predict how much debris that's going to generate down to, you know, specific tonnage. So that's really important as a planning consideration. Where things get complicated is where you get convergence of multiple um, hazards. So Hurricane Katrina, for example, had multiple waste streams, um, both from the flooding aspects of that disaster and the hurricane aspect, which both produced generally on their own, uh, very separate debris patterns. So it further compounded uh, recovery efforts. Uh, the literature also talked about, you know, again, going through the different types of waste streams. We mentioned uh, C and D is the most common. Um, most of the debris comes from the disaster in terms of impacted physical infrastructure, but there are some unique uh, disaster waste streams that are created specifically by disasters and, and nothing else. So that included uh, excessive unwanted donations, which can actually be so burdensome, they can overwhelm your waste stream and, uh, you know, just overload an already crippled um, infrastructure. You heard examples of that before? Yeah, I think this particular example has shown up in other elements of emergency and disaster management, uh, the, especially the unwanted or unsolicited donations flooding in. And, and that's not just a drain on waste management resources. That's a drain on volunteer resources for the, the sorting. Uh, there's all sorts of... Um, uh, regulation and compliance measures that need to be implemented for donations of food, for example. So that's a huge drain on uh, a lot of the inspection and and uh, um, and approval agencies. So yeah. throughout uh, that theme um, has been present, and I'm I'm glad to see it reaffirmed again in the debris management. Yeah, so they talk about uh, rotten food, as you mentioned, and healthcare waste, which um, the medical response to disasters tend to generate huge amounts of waste. So that was an interesting point. Um, they also talked about the uh, specific quantities of waste and how uh, they seem to vary um, along with socioeconomic status of the uh, affected communities, which you would kind of expect in terms of more robust and resilient communities, uh, maybe not having as many impacted structures, so the waste uh, uh, produced from that and the de debris will be different. Um, another uh, topic they spent a lot of time reviewing was the use of temporary staging sites. Now this is a uh, intuitive thing you might think would be useful to do during a disaster to help um, buy time as a temporizing measure is to you know essentially make some impromptu storage sites or dumps to uh, put your debris. 
unfortunately, historically, this has often gone uh, <laughs> afoul a few times, and a few examples they list in, in the article include uh, playgrounds, schools, other community sites being used as dumping grounds, which um, wasn't very well received by the community and just left a more impacted area once it was done. Plus, you had to pay twice to move something. If you're moving it to a temporary storage site and then onwards to its final destination, then you've got two transport costs to consider. And it plays into that kind of universal truth of disaster responses. There's no such thing as temporary. Uh, as soon as you've established something temporary, you can you can expect it to uh, go on well into the future and even possibly become a cultural icon, as we've seen in other temporary housing situations or temporary measures that really just carry on. Yeah, that's a good adage for sure. No such thing as temporary. And, you know, in the worst case scenario, you're talking about um, managing human remains. There's been examples even in Canada, for example, the Swiss Air crash where, you know, bodies were uh, stored in uh, community uh, ice rinks and things like that, which is uh, can be quite psychologically traumatizing. Um, the authors spent a bit of time talking about recycling and what percentage of disaster waste actually can be recycled and also all the benefits to doing that. So um, long term, there's cost benefits for uh, not having to use as much landfill cover and uh, also potentially, again, economic benefit if you can reuse some of your debris. And they talk about some creative uses for disaster debris as well. Um, from the environmental standpoint, essentially, if you're a community or a jurisdiction that didn't have a good uh, pre-disaster debris management plan, then predictably uh, with a disaster, things won't get much better. So they talk a lot about having a good standard, what they refer to as peacetime um, debris management strategies as being a predictor of success. Uh, the authors review a, a bunch of papers on the social considerations, which uh, bring in some of the uh, human impact uh, in terms of how it can affect the livelihood of uh, of victims in a in a disaster and then it looks a lot at uh, organizational structures so how to organize and um, administratively manage uh, debris removal so some plans talk a lot about private industry uh, taking a huge role other um, jurisdictions there's going to be public entities or um, recovery commissions that that take the lead and they review and kind of compare and contrast those different uh, modalities essentially there's no one right answer and literature is pretty sparse in, in that area in terms of uh, planning there's some interesting discussion about um, you know should is there an actual value to having a, a plan? And there's another paper more recently that speaks to this topic as well, um, which I'll mention. It's uh, from the same journal, Waste Management. The study is uh, entitled A Measurement of the Effectiveness and Efficiency of Pre-Disaster Debris Management Plans. It's by Julia uh, Crowley from the Department of Urban Regional Planning in uh, University of Hawaii and essentially provides evidence for one of the hardest questions to answer in emergency management is do plans make a difference? And we all know intuitively and we think intuitively they do, but can we actually provide evidence that they work and, and, and make things better? And this uh, survey-based research looked at, uh, uh, surveyed 1,500 counties. Uh, they only had a, a fairly small sample size of only 95 respondents, but they did find that um, based on the survey research, there was a perceived, you know, improvement Improvement in, in planning, which you would expect if somebody's filling out a survey. But importantly, the communities that actually were affected by disasters did have a more efficient response compared to communities that didn't have a plan. Interestingly, there was no statistically 
uh, significant difference in the overall cost for recovering uh, the debris or managing the debris. So it might make you more efficient, but it won't necessarily uh, save you money, which is um, interesting because a lot of the government uh, uh, guidelines we reviewed talk about pre-planning as a, as a cost-saving measure. And I don't know if that's necessarily an evidence-based uh, conclusion that you could make. I can't help but wonder if the uncharted costs were probably lower with people who weren't losing their minds trying to source contractors and, and yeah. uh, managing traffic jams, etc. So they were able to remove more cubic yards of debris per day, uh, but not um, necessarily volume of debris per dollar. So if all of this seems a wee bit overwhelming, you're not alone. This is a highly technical and complex topic, and because of that, we have for you several stepwise tools of the trade. So our first tool of the trade is the FEMA courses that are available on debris management. If you're just getting into debris management and want to learn a little bit more, and this is a core competency for disaster managers, I think you'd start out with the FEMA Intro to Debris Operations course and the Debris Management Plan Development course. You can't go wrong with free education. And one of the tools, once you're done with that course, is called iWaste. It's a uh, decision support tool that helps you estimate how much disaster debris you can expect from certain um, uh, impacted uh, regions. And you type in a bunch of information to a calculator. You do need to create an account. Uh, it's free, but uh, you'll find that as another uh, government uh, resource from the FEMA uh, website. Uh, another tool of the trade, which is a bit more international, is uh, provided through one of the UN agencies, and specifically the Environmental Emergencies Center, and it's called the Disaster Waste Management Guidelines. And if you wanted a one-stop shop uh, to get all of the news you can use uh, in an actual disaster, this is where to go. It tells you right from hour zero of a disaster and it goes through all the natural hazards that you'd expect all the way through to end stage recovery and then the rebuild phase and important to distinguish in the disaster uh, waste terms those different phases uh, do produce different waste streams when people are rebuilding versus recovering and uh, excellent uh, um, uh, useful data that you can reference in real time as well as checklists and kind of decision matrix um, so a great uh, resource, the Disaster Waste Management Guidelines from the UN. And finally, I think it's important that you check out the Solid Waste Association of North America or SWANA website and their documents. Um, just type in disaster debris into their, their search bar and you will find everything from debris management plan checklists to academic and white papers on disaster debris management uh, and even webinars and e-courses. Uh, they are one of the authorities on disaster debris management and a lot of the tools that we've been talking about and a lot of the paper we've been talking about are incorporated uh, within that organization so be sure you check it out and just before we go we'd like to mention a word from our sponsor the alberta podcast network which is powered by atb the Alberta Podcast Network is an amazing community of inspired fellow podcasters, and we're very proud to be a part of them. So if you like this episode and interested in hazards, which I'm guessing you are, you might want to check out one of our sister podcasts, Let's Find Out, specifically their 19th episode called, And I Would Have Gotten Away With Those Wildfires Too. Also, if you want to make a difference for a cause that's important to you, you should know about the ATB CARES program. Uh, ATB CARES lets you increase the impact of your donations. You donate to your favorite charity on atbcares.com, and ATB will cover the fees, plus add 15% to your donations. In 2017, over $4 million was donated to charity through ATB CARES, and it's a great way you can support a worthy disaster-related cause. 
And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Joe Angevine for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of debris management. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.